Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Alexander Hamilton. Now let's get started with our story about Alexander Hamilton. It is not surprising that the life of Alexander Hamilton has become a popular culture sensation. Born illegitimately, orphaned at a young age, Hamilton emigrated to the U.S. and benefited from wealthy connections who ensured that he received an excellent education. A hero of the American Revolution, Hamilton's influence on U.S. government finance, foreign relations, and politics reverberated profoundly. His romantic escapades, scandalous affairs, and death at the hands of Aaron Burr in a controversial duel add to the contrast between Hamilton and many of the stodgier political figures of his day. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Alexander Hamilton are complicated, and even when he was born is a matter of dispute. His mother, Rachel Fawcett, was of British and French descent. His father, James Hamilton, was a Scot. They met on the island of St. Kitts in the British West Indies, where James Hamilton was unsuccessfully attempting to build a career trading sugar and other goods. Unfortunately, James Hamilton wasn't much of a businessman and was typically bailed out of business mishaps by wealthier family connections. Luckily, Rachel had inherited some property on the island of Nevis from her father. It was here that Alexander Hamilton was born, the year either 1755 or 1757. Problematically, Rachel was still married to a Dane, Johann Levine, who she had abandoned in St. Croix. Since they were difficult and expensive to obtain, Rachel never bothered to get a divorce. This seems to have complicated her relationship with James Hamilton, who, after 15 years of companionship, would ultimately desert her and his children when Alexander was 10 years old. Rachel had moved back to St. Croix, where she raised her two sons, until her death from yellow fever in February of 1768. Possibly because he was illegitimate, Alexander did not get much of a formal education. At least one of his better-connected relatives got the teenaged Hamilton a clerk's job before also dying off. At the age of 13, Alexander began work at an import-export house in Christiansted, St. Croix. Hamilton toiled at this firm, Beekman and Kruger, for over four years until a local minister, Hugh Knox, arranged for a scholarship funded by various local businessmen, who all recognized Hamilton's superior intelligence and potential. In October 1772, Alexander Hamilton left St. Croix, his relatives, including his biological father and brother, and set sail for Boston and the promise of America. He never saw his father or brother again. Hamilton's ultimate destination was New York and a college preparatory education. He was also supported by a network of individuals who were acquainted with Unox or Hamilton's former employers in St. Croix. Because Hamilton could not afford years of tuition, his mentors enrolled him at Elizabethtown Academy at Elizabeth, New Jersey, a school flexible enough to allow Hamilton to essentially cram his studies into one year. The headmaster, Francis Barber, became both a respected teacher as well as a close friend. It was also through his business associates at Beekman and Kruger that Hamilton met some of the most prominent members of the families that dominated the early commerce in the states of New York and New Jersey. William Livingston, the future first governor of New Jersey and father-in-law of John Jay, the first chief justice of the United States, and the Schuyler family from Albany, a connection that would prove most important in both Hamilton's personal and professional life. Hamilton actually lived at Liberty Hall, the 120-acre home of William Livingston, 
At a young age, Hamilton was exposed to the type of landed gentry that would instigate the economic and political future of the United States. It only increased his ambition to become a part of this emerging ruling class. Based on his connections, Alexander Hamilton seemed destined to attend the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton. His initial benefactor, Hugh Knox, was a graduate. Other acquaintances, including William Livingston, sat on the college's board of trustees. But, the story goes, after meeting with the college's president, John Witherspoon, Hamilton was granted admission, but then insisted on an accelerated course of study that would allow early graduation. While this was not unprecedented, Witherspoon punted and ultimately formally withdrew the school's acceptance. Hamilton wound up instead at King's College, present-day Columbia University, a school far less politically radical than Princeton and religiously Anglican as opposed to the Presbyterians in southern New Jersey. Undoubtedly, Hamilton's presence in New York, as opposed to a rural backwater, exposed him personally to both events and individuals that gave him a front-row seat for the coming political conflict. Among King's College's hierarchy, Hamilton quickly ingratiated himself with the school president, Miles Cooper, who approved Hamilton's accelerated course of study. He became an undergraduate in the fall of 1773. Amidst Hamilton's singular focus on academics, political events swirled throughout the colonies that affected both the city and the region. In December of 1773, a Boston mob organized by Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty threw hundreds of chests of the British East India Company's tea into Boston Harbor. In New York, the British did not even attempt to offload their cargo of tea because of threats from the New York chapter of the Sons of Liberty to do the same thing. While it is believed that Hamilton took part in organized demonstrations with his friend Hercules Mulligan, he had to be discreet about such participation as any association with such behavior would certainly cost him his scholarship at King's College. He most likely concentrated on political writing and theory, a practice that could be carried out anonymously. The situation in the colonies only grew more tense when the British government punished Boston by shutting down its port until the East India Company was repaid for its ruined tea. Colonial opposition coalesced around the First Continental Congress, held in Philadelphia in September and October of 1774. The delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies, Georgia abstained, focused on implementing a boycott and organizing a Second Continental Congress in the event that Britain continued its harsh rule. The British government ignored colonial demands, and the situation became more inflamed. Hamilton continued publishing anonymously, his perspective evolving into a belief that the British could not impose legal governance without local democratic agreement, a radical argument in its day. Inevitably, armed conflict broke out in Boston in April of 1775. Upon hearing of this development, Hamilton enthusiastically joined an armed militia. In late April, organized opposition took control of New York City and deposed the British-appointed local government. Most of the Loyalist population fled the city itself, waiting for an inevitable British military response from the comfort of the rural surroundings. In May, Miles Cooper, an unabashed Tory, fled his post at King's College, only minutes before an angry mob tried to seize him. Hamilton actually aided in Cooper's escape, reasoning that harming or even lynching such an individual would only reflect poorly on the revolutionary movement. Cooper sought protection on a British warship and left soon after, never to return to the colonies. While Hamilton espoused radical political beliefs in writing, he disliked the activities of the Sons of Liberty, who routinely rounded up those they considered loyalists and subjected them to such humiliating practices as tar and feathering. It gave Hamilton a lifelong disdain for the behavior of a mob, a perspective that shaped his political outlook. He communicated this feeling by letter to John Jay, a prominent New York member of the Second Continental Congress, and Jay responded by requesting that Hamilton continue to correspond with information on what was happening on the ground in New York. Jay was a powerful ally and respected member of the Patriot Movement. Besides providing intelligence to Jay and the Continental Congress, Hamilton would soon become directly involved in colonial military affairs. In August of 1775, 
Hamilton took part in a militia attempt to seize cannon from the battery that protected British Fort George. Hamilton, with Hercules Mulligan and others, succeeded in liberating 21 of two dozen guns. When New York's colonial government ordered that an artillery company be formed to prepare for an inevitable British attack on the territory, Hamilton used his connections to be named Captain Hamilton of the Provincial Company of Artillery. With this appointment, Hamilton, at age 21, was now formally involved in the military effort of the American Revolution. He left King's College and would never return or graduate. He had much more important career objectives. Although Hamilton was offered staff positions with other colonial generals, he declined, reasoning that he could have more influence commanding his own unit. He made the unprecedented decision of promoting an enlisted man into the rank of lieutenant, a decision that contradicted the European practice of populating the officer corps with well-connected gentry. Unlike most of the aristocratic politicians who were in the forefront of the American Revolution, Hamilton was illegitimate and an immigrant who would not be intimidated or concerned about social status influencing a revolution. Hamilton's flexibility already required that he bring resourcefulness to his position. Because of a British ban on the manufacture of iron, the only weapons Hamilton could obtain would be guns seized from British forts or from ships. Although there was a 1775 American invasion of Canada, this effort was a failure and most of the early hostilities centered around the city of Boston and its British occupation. In March of 1776, British troops abruptly abandoned the city entirely, not wanting to repeat the costly lesson of the Battle of Bunker Hill. This retreat was perceived as a great victory for the colonies, but the British regrouped and chose New York as the location of a massive invasion. In early July of 1776, hundreds of British ships sailed into New York and offloaded almost 40,000 men onto Staten Island, a loyalist stronghold that the thinly-stretched Patriot defense could not defend. On July 9th, the recently signed Declaration of Independence was read publicly at New York City Hall and the impressive equestrian statue of George III was pulled down and sent to Connecticut to be melted down for ammunition. George Washington eventually brought his troops south from New England and began to prepare for an inevitable attack by the British. Hamilton situated his company on the highest ground on Manhattan Island and constructed fortifications for a defensive battery. But instead of Manhattan, the British landed troops on Long Island on August 27, 1776, and succeeded in inflicting defeat on a disorganized American defense. They followed up with another attack on Manhattan on September 16th, which caused Washington to order a complete evacuation of the city. Hamilton barely escaped and proceeded to the new American lines at Harlem Heights. Here he met George Washington for the first time. Although Washington successfully repelled the British advance and steadied at the Harlem Heights, ultimately he again decided to retreat to the village of White Plains. The British would again advance and involve Hamilton and his artillery company in their first meaningful participation in the conflict. Dug in against a full-scale assault by British troops, the American line held until eventually giving way in an organized retreat. Washington then ordered a withdrawal across the Hudson River to New Jersey. While the Americans were fortunate to escape complete destruction at the hands of the British, it was a depressed Continental Army that made its way to the western side of the Hudson. Defeating the massive British contingent of well-equipped, experienced soldiers with a smaller, inexperienced unit seemed impossible. The British consolidated their control over the colony of New York, forcing the surrender of Fort Washington and Fort Lee. British attempts to completely destroy the rebel army continued across the state of New Jersey. On November 29th, Hamilton was able to provide artillery cover at the Raritan River, allowing Washington to again escape toward Princeton and southern New Jersey. This skillful tactic caught the attention of Washington personally. Even so, this action was to be repeated at the Delaware as the British chased the Patriots out of another state. With the weather turning severe, British Commander Howe ordered Hessian mercenaries to headquarter at Trenton. Most British troops would return to the relative comfort of New York. With many enlistments scheduled to run out on December 31st, Washington knew that he needed to do something dramatic to stop a relentless tide of demoralization. 
Although it only involved a total of less than 4,000 men and less than 25 artillery pieces, the Battle of Trenton is revered as one of the most important moments in U.S. military history. On Christmas night, 1776, George Washington ordered approximately 2,000 troops to begin crossing the Delaware River near Trenton, New Jersey. Hamilton and his company, now only 30 men in total, were part of this attack. In spite of dreadful weather, the entire American force made it across the Delaware River and as dawn approached, marched a dozen miles to the outskirts of the town. At 8 in the morning, a coordinated attack on the Hessian barracks began. Sleeping off their Christmas celebration, the Hessians were taken by surprise. In the ensuing battle, many enemy troops were killed or wounded, and over 900 Hessians were captured. Hamilton's company was directly involved in this success, helping to personally stop a Hessian counterattack. Despite the victory, the Americans had to recross the Delaware and bring their prisoners with them. Washington attempted another dramatic attack several days later, this time against British troops at Princeton. Again using surprise, the Americans attacked in the early morning, ultimately forcing a British retreat into Nassau Hall itself. Legend has it that the Redcoats fired from the stronghold until Hamilton arrived with his two 8-inch guns and began peppering his once prospective alma mater with cannonballs. True or not, the British surrendered and Washington had two rapid, stunning successes. These two battles also improved Hamilton's fortunes. At the age of 22, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and asked to join Washington's personal staff. Hamilton had previously turned down two similar appointments. This time he knew that serving at Washington's right hand would afford him another great opportunity to become a central figure in the revolution. It was the beginning of a relationship that would last for a quarter of a century through a remarkable time period. Actual military conflict paused during the winter of 1777, but it was the intelligence provided by Hamilton's contacts that correctly predicted that the British would head south and attempt to capture Philadelphia once hostilities resumed. Once again on September 11th, the British drove American troops from the battlefield at Brandywine. Once again, Washington was able to escape complete destruction. However, the British marched into Philadelphia on September 26th, displacing the Continental Congress, which fled to western Pennsylvania. This retreat would precipitate one of the low points of the war, the American winter encampment at Valley Forge, in which Washington lost half of his troops to winter cold, capture, or disease. Intrigue also surrounded the command of the Continental Army itself. Fresh off a decisive October victory over a separate British contingent at Saratoga, General Horatio Gates was enjoying attention and confidence as opposed to the perceived failure of Commander-in-Chief Washington. Gates was also refusing to send reinforcements to Washington and Pennsylvania. Washington sent Hamilton to meet with Gates, who typically backed off in person, but privately was shocked at Hamilton's determined insistence in the face of a senior officer. Gates' backbiting would ultimately cause the deterioration of his relationship with both Washington and Congress and historical speculation that he conspired to take Washington's place. Gates subsequently apologized to Washington and was reassigned. Hamilton fell seriously ill during this mission and did not return to Valley Forge until January. Two other developments occurred during the bleak winter of 1777-78. The first was the arrival of Friedrich von Steuben, an officer officially recommended from Europe by Benjamin Franklin. Von Steuben was not the Prussian lieutenant general that he was alleged to be, but he did impose fundamental military organization that greatly improved the disorganized colonial effort. With Hamilton's help, von Steuben composed a simplified set of regulations to inject some water into everyday military life. They also began a program of individually rigorous daily drills that brought increased military capabilities and improved morale. The American victory at Saratoga also convinced the French government that Great Britain was vulnerable in North America. France promised both military and financial aid. With the surprising British decision to abandon the captured city of Philadelphia in June of 1778, Washington sensed an opportunity when the British under Sir Henry Clinton began an overland march north to New York City. He sent Hamilton on horseback on an extended intelligence-gathering mission to assess both British strength and intention. When it was clear that the British were merely attempting to march north as quickly as possible, 
the decision was made to attack in the vicinity of Monmouth, New Jersey. Washington ordered his second-in-command, Charles Lee, to engage the British rear guard. Lee, an incompetent, possibly traitorous former British officer who felt he should have been initially appointed commander-in-chief instead of Washington, bungled this attack so badly that he was relieved of command. Washington rallied the disorganized Continental Army and fought the British to a draw. That night, Clinton ordered his troops to continue the retreat rather than to re-engage. Hamilton had been quite visible during the battle, also helping to organize hastily retreating troops for a counterattack. His day ended when he collapsed in the 100-degree heat. His horse shot out from under him. Hamilton would also testify at the subsequent court-martial of Charles Lee, who would be suspended for a year. Lee would continue with open criticism of both Washington and Hamilton, behavior that finally culminated in a duel with another Hamilton friend, John Lorenz. Hamilton was present as Lorenz's second, and although Lee was wounded in the affair, the first duel Hamilton participated in, no one was killed. Lee never served in the Continental Army again. With the British bottled up in New York, Hamilton would spend most of the rest of 1778 through 1780 in New Jersey as essentially Washington's senior administrative aide. Not until December 1779, when the British sailed south and began a siege of Charleston, South Carolina, although Hamilton's professional life remained uneventful, it was during this time period that he became involved with the woman that he would marry, Elizabeth Schuyler, the second daughter of General Philip Schuyler, a wealthy land and business owner from the Hudson Valley. Hamilton would amuse himself for much of 1780 courting his future wife with romantic letters and occasional social outings. However, in September of 1780, Hamilton would become personally involved in a far more serious matter that almost jeopardized the American Revolution itself. That summer, Benedict Arnold had been placed in command of the American garrison at West Point. This was meant to soothe Arnold's bitterness over a recent court-martial, as well as repeated lack of promotion or recognition. Unfortunately, Arnold was secretly negotiating with the British to betray the fort as well as engineer the capture of Washington and his entire staff. On September 25th, Washington was scheduled to meet with Arnold at West Point for a formal inspection. The commander-in-chief would be returning from Hartford after a conference with the French Comte de Rochambeau. His retinue would include the Marquis de Lafayette, Hamilton, and another patriot general, Henry Knox. But Washington took longer than expected and ordered Hamilton and another aide to proceed to Arnold's home and headquarters for their morning meeting. Literally during breakfast, a messenger arrived with a note to Arnold that a British spy named, quote, John Anderson, unquote, had been arrested in northern New Jersey with maps and information about the fortifications at West Point. Arnold knew that Anderson was actually the British head of intelligence, the well-known John Andre, who had been given the documents only days earlier by Arnold himself. Benedict Arnold realized that it was only a matter of hours before his betrayal would be discovered. He ran upstairs, said goodbye to his young wife, Peggy Shippen Arnold, and hurriedly ran to the barge meant to convey the party to West Point. Instead, he bribed the crew to take him to the British warship HMS Vulture, stationed on the Hudson, had the crew captured as prisoners of war, and was hastily transported to safety in New York City. Alexander Hamilton, literally at the breakfast table, was puzzled and alarmed by the upstairs shrieks from Arnold's wife. Ultimately, Washington arrived, noted Arnold's curious behavior, but continued on to his inspection. By the time he returned, Hamilton had assembled numerous incriminating documents, including the papers found on Andre. Washington ordered Hamilton to attempt to seize Arnold before he reached British lines, but the traitor was already safely in British hands. Ultimately, Peggy Shippen and her young infant would be allowed to return to Philadelphia and a reunion with her husband. Andre, the former love interest of both Peggy Shippen and Elizabeth Schuyler, was not so fortunate. After the British rejected a swap for Benedict Arnold, he was hanged at Tapan, New Jersey, in a ceremony witnessed by many, including Alexander Hamilton. Considered a great British military hero, his remains were eventually entombed in Westminster Abbey. In November 1780, Hamilton would be granted leave to head north to marry Elizabeth Schuyler. The wedding would occur at the spectacular Albany, New York home of Philip Schuyler on December 14, 1780. 
Hamilton would return to headquarters, having discussed future plans with his father-in-law and determined to achieve glory on the battlefield before the war ended. His frustration with his desktop inconsequence and the inability to receive a battlefield or diplomatic assignment boiled over when, in mid-February, a disagreement with Washington erupted into Hamilton quitting his position. But because Hamilton was the only current Washington aide that spoke and wrote French, he was persuaded to stay until a replacement could be found. Although Hamilton would have to threaten to resign his commission from the army, eventually he was given command of a battalion of New York infantry and ordered south. By the end of September 1781, he was in the vanguard of troops attempting to trap Lord Cornwallis's force at Yorktown. 17,000 men, 7,500 of them French, confronted 7,000 British troops dug in in fortifications around what was to have been a deep-water port constructed to expand the British Southern Campaign. French and American artillery wore down the British fortifications until an infantry assault was ordered on the British outer defenses. Hamilton demanded and got command of one of the columns involved in the assault, which turned out to be heroically successful and worthy of George Washington personally singling out Hamilton in his report to Congress. On October 19, 1781, his situation untenable and with no help forthcoming from New York, Lord Cornwallis capitulated. Hamilton rushed straight home to his pregnant wife, anxious to get on with the rest of his life. Hamilton's first son, Philip, was born in January of 1782, and typically, Hamilton immediately immersed himself in his father-in-law's law books, intending on becoming a lawyer. Although he initially vowed to remain a private citizen, he could not resist interacting with members of the government, and in 1782 was appointed a New York representative to the Congress of the Confederation, the governing body of the United States under the Articles of Confederation. But even as a member, Hamilton was troubled by this entity's inability to raise revenue through taxation and its weak disorganization. His stated suggestion that the states assume a collective national debt was ignored and obligations to army veterans and foreign governments went unpaid. Hamilton left Congress in 1783 and returned to New York City in an attempt to build a law practice. Hamilton was at the forefront of early legal attempts to ban slavery in the state of New York, efforts that would officially fail until well into the 19th century. He also took on loyalist clients and demanded that the state and local officials abide by the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War, which specifically stated that confiscated loyalist property be returned and further confiscation of property be banned. Very quickly, Hamilton became the most prominent attorney in New York City. The failure of the states to unify under one autonomous entity had disastrous economic effects on the new nation. Without any real economic structure, commerce was limited. Great Britain closed off many former trading vehicles, especially in the Caribbean, and loyalists, frightened of retaliation and economic penalties, fled to Europe, especially from New York. The relatively peaceful demands from veterans were replaced by farmers fomenting armed rebellion against the states. The brief but virulent Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts and a similar incident in Pennsylvania underlined the economic desperation of those about to be evicted from their land, unable to acquire credit for even basic necessities. In a letter written during this time period, after personally reviewing some of his real estate holdings and unsuccessfully attempting to collect rents, Washington wrote to Madison, We are vast verging to anarchy and confusion. It was amidst this chaos that the Constitutional Convention was convened in Philadelphia on May 25, 1787. Hamilton was one of three New York delegates. The other two were political allies of New York Governor George Clinton, by now a bitter rival of Hamilton, over, among other things, the issue of taxation. Hamilton initially bided his time, but eventually spoke for six hours, offering various proposals that would eventually be adopted in some form. While he initially called for a chief executive that would serve for life and a legislative body that appeared much like Britain's parliament, after much debate and compromise, Hamilton's ideas were incorporated into the framework of American government. In an attempt to sabotage the convention, the two Clinton delegates left Philadelphia. Hamilton remained, and when the Constitution was finally agreed upon in September, he would be the only New Yorker to sign it. Despite misgivings, Hamilton returned to New York State and involved himself in the process of constitutional ratification. Attacked in print by George Clinton, 
Hamilton contacted John Jay and James Madison and proposed that they write a regular series of essays in favor of ratification. Illness forced Jay out after four articles. Madison contributed 26, and Hamilton composed 51. The essays were to be published in three New York newspapers, but also reprinted in other papers and additionally compiled in cheap pamphlet editions to distribute in any state where ratification was at issue. Writing anonymously, Hamilton, as well as Madison's work, probably had a negligible effect on the ratification process, especially in New York. But the Federalist Papers have served as a record of the constitutional framers' mindset and intent. Ultimately, despite bitter opposition from the more rural parts of the state, New York became the 11th Assembly to ratify the Constitution, chiefly because nine states had already provided the necessary two-thirds majority that effectively isolated New York if it refused to go along. Hamilton had been a great supporter of the new Constitution. Next, he would attempt to influence the election of the chief executive. He convinced a reluctant George Washington to serve if elected, and he maneuvered behind the scenes to damage the candidacy of George Clinton and John Adams. Electors would be chosen individually by the states, some by popular vote and some by state legislature. Once Washington publicly indicated a willingness to serve, his election was a foregone conclusion. The only drama, the selection of a vice president, who until 1804 was selected by the candidate who received the second most electoral votes for president. Washington became the only U.S. president elected by a unanimous group of electors. John Adams of Massachusetts was elected vice president. But because they had been so consequential in getting Washington elected, Hamilton and Madison helped the new chief executive pick his cabinet with zero input from Adams. John Jay, a Hamilton ally, became the chief justice. Thomas Jefferson, Madison's closest political ally, became the Secretary of State. Hamilton, despite a growing family and a desire to get back to his law practice, ultimately became the first Secretary of the Treasury. Madison, who was intent on becoming a senator from Virginia, was blocked by anti-ratification zealot Patrick Henry, who opposed his election by the Virginia legislature. Instead, Madison wound up in the U.S. Congress. Hamilton would become the new president's most trusted advisor. Historical rumors have always swirled about the relationship between Alexander Hamilton and his sister-in-law, Angelica Schuyler Church. Angelica was trapped in a loveless marriage with a husband who fled the colonies over a duel, made a fortune in Britain during the Revolution, and decided to stay and serve in Parliament. His wife was much more sophisticated and worldly than her younger sister, Elizabeth, who hated New York and spent as much time as possible with domestic pursuits and having additional children. Elizabeth chose to spend as much time as possible upstate, even if that meant time away from her husband. During the summer of 1789, Hamilton would pick up his sister-in-law's expenses when she came to New York without her husband or children, even moving her out of his own residence and into her own apartment. While his wife spent the summer in Albany, Hamilton stayed behind, helping to get the new government off of the ground. Whether or not his relationship during this time period with his sister-in-law ever turned physical depends on who you ask. On September 11, 1789, Hamilton was officially appointed the Secretary of the Treasury, the largest of the new government departments. Most of his employees were customs tax collectors, the initial vehicle by which Hamilton hoped to eradicate the government debt. Hamilton was asked by President Washington to design a federal financial system and submit it to Congress in approximately 100 days. Although it would require compromise involving the permanent location of the federal capital to a spot along the Potomac River between Maryland and Virginia, Hamilton was able to get Congress to adopt his plan for funding the national debt, essentially having the federal government assume all of the state's war debts. Hamilton moved to the interim capital, Philadelphia, having incurred more enemies in New York City who felt betrayed by the relocation of the national capital. By contrast to the filth and disorder of New York, Philadelphia was the most prosperous and largest American city, and its cleanliness and lifestyle reflected this. In Philadelphia, Hamilton set about the formation of a national bank, the Bank of the United States. He would draw on his own experience, having formed the Bank of New York six years earlier. 
But Hamilton was opposed by others in government, namely Jefferson and Madison, who felt that this was a dangerous expansion of federal power and that nothing in the Constitution explicitly allowed for such a formation of such a financial entity. Thus began the first of many constitutional discussions of the implied powers of the federal government and the concept that the federal government had the right to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper, unquote, to implement the powers inherently granted in the document. Jefferson, by contrast, proposed the concept of strict construction, that is, that all powers not specifically enumerated in the Constitution would be reserved to the states, a concept ultimately spelled out in the soon-to-be-adopted Tenth Amendment. In this particular political disagreement, the issue was settled by George Washington, who, after consulting with his cabinet and other influential members of the government, decided to sign the bank bill into law. Washington felt that if he repudiated the bank bill, he would essentially be giving Hamilton a personal rebuke that would cause his Treasury Secretary's resignation. The establishment of a national bank also led to the establishment of another Hamilton objective, the U.S. Mint. The Mint Act passed in 1792 and established the silver dollar as legal tender and the main unit of American currency. Based on the disastrous results involving the issuing of paper money during the American Revolution, it would not be until the middle of the 19th century that the U.S. government issued paper currency. While briefly able to work together on this issue, Hamilton and Jefferson clearly had a fundamental philosophical conflict. Hamilton was continually and vociferously enthusiastic about closer ties to Great Britain. Jefferson and Madison were opposed. Debate over this and many other governmental issues would ultimately foment the formation of political parties, something that initially did not exist in the new democracy. 1792 also brought about events that would impact Hamilton negatively. His former assistant secretary to the Treasury, William Dewar, conspired in a large-scale scheme in New York to speculate on U.S. government securities issued by the Bank of the United States. When this scheme collapsed, prices of securities plummeted, affecting investors across the country and threatening to cause a widespread financial collapse. Hamilton intervened through the Bank of New York to buy securities and prop up the financial markets, and ultimately the panic was contained to the New York market. But this incident would allow Madison and Jefferson to attack Hamilton in Congress and force votes of confidence that, while unsuccessful, forced a split in government along partisan lines. Hamilton's faction would be recognized as the Federalists, resembling something like today's Republicans. Madison and Jefferson's adherents would be called the Democratic Republicans, today's Democrats. In November of 1792, Hamilton would be ensnared by behavior initiated the previous summer. While investigating the criminal behavior of two men involved in financial fraud against the U.S. Treasury, the Treasury Comptroller had these two men, James Reynolds and Jacob Klingman, arrested. Both men began making spectacular accusations against Hamilton, involving insider speculation and other improprieties. The charges were serious enough that three lawmakers, Frederick Muhlenberg, Abraham Venable, and James Monroe decided to confront Hamilton before they went public with such sensational charges. They met privately with Hamilton, who denied any official impropriety, but who also revealed a remarkable connection to James Reynolds. In the summer of 1791, according to Hamilton, a woman named Maria Reynolds knocked on the door of his Philadelphia home and met with him privately, despite the presence in the house of Hamilton's wife. She recounted a terrible tale of mistreatment at the hands of her husband, claimed she was abandoned and utterly destitute, and pleaded with Hamilton for financial help for her and her young daughter. That very evening, Hamilton walked over to Maria's residence and handed cash to the 23-year-old and impulsively began a physical relationship that would last for two years. Maria Reynolds would eventually divorce her husband, but in the meantime, her husband would blackmail Hamilton and demand a position at the U.S. Treasury. When Hamilton presented letters from Maria and described the true nature of his relationship with James Reynolds, Muhlenberg and Venable quickly decided that this was a personal matter and not financial malfeasance, and they were practically apologetic. James Monroe, a close political ally of Jefferson, was not so sympathetic. He was noncommittal and seemed quite comfortable in discussing the matter in detail. Although all three men promised not to subsequently discuss the affair, and the scandal was not revealed publicly at that time, 
Both Jefferson and Madison quickly became aware of Hamilton's indiscretion, and Monroe kept copies of all documents he obtained during this interaction. It is quite possible that Hamilton realized that such damaging information would surface if he ever chose to pursue the presidency, perhaps the reason that when Washington chose not to seek a third term, Hamilton did not run against John Adams. For the moment, Hamilton escaped scrutiny over the Reynolds affair, but he spent part of 1793 fighting attempts by members of Congress to impeach him for other impropriety. While these attempts failed, they indicated the extreme hostility that Hamilton generated in some political circles. Hamilton was already tired of the political infighting involved in governance. He informed Washington that he would resign at the end of 1793. Only the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794 kept Hamilton interested enough to continue in government. When a bunch of moonshiners in western Pennsylvania refused to pay excise taxes on the alcohol they produced, Hamilton believed it to be a crucial test of the authority of a strong federal government to levy and collect taxes. The whiskey tax was the first tax levied by the U.S. government and was decried as both regressive and more taxation without representation. When events deteriorated into thousands of armed western Pennsylvania citizens calling for a secession from the United States, Hamilton saw the affair as a perfect opportunity to crush local resistance to federal taxation. A militia was raised, and in October 1794, accompanied by Hamilton as an advisor and directed by President Washington, 13,000 federal troops marched into the region which offered no resistance. The rebellion soon collapsed, and although the tax remained difficult to collect, the authority of the federal government was underlined. Hamilton resigned in early 1795 and returned to his law practice in New York. Hamilton found it impossible to refrain from political involvement, and as a high-profile political advisor to Washington, his opponents, the Democratic Republicans, found it impossible not to criticize him. Hamilton unsuccessfully tried to manipulate the 1796 presidential election to the detriment of both Adams and Jefferson. Ultimately, this effort failed and merely generated more public hostility. In 1797, when published accounts of the Reynolds affair began to appear using information that could have only come from the three men who confronted him, Hamilton demanded that his three original accusers swear that he was innocent of any financial wrongdoing. Monroe refused, and Hamilton began the highly ritualized process of demanding a duel. This exchange dragged on for months, including a face-to-face meeting in which both men had to be physically separated by their accompanying witnesses. The blustering continued in writing, especially after Hamilton decided to publish a pamphlet that admitted his adultery, but contradicted any charges of illegal speculation at the Department of the Treasury. Monroe wasn't sure how to proceed, but close friends told him to move on. With the end of the year, relations with France were deteriorating badly, and perhaps Hamilton saw an opportunity to re-enter politics on a national scale. A duel, even if he prevailed, might prevent such an opportunity. The duel never happened, but whether Hamilton realized it or not, his revelations about the Reynolds affair essentially ended his elective political career. In 1798, the U.S. became involved in a dispute with France over the repayment of debt incurred during the rule of French King Louis XVI. As France had undergone regime change via the French Revolution, it became the policy of the U.S. government to stop repaying loans to a different government. The French responded by raiding American shipping and snubbing American negotiators in what became known as the XYZ Affair, a political event that inflamed Americans and brought forth demands for a formal declaration of war from Federalists. Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans were partial to France, so the entire dispute became an issue with partisan political overtones. Armed fighting between the two countries' navies, dubbed the Quasi-War, broke out in the Caribbean, and congressional demands to mobilize a standing army led to the inevitable request to George Washington to supervise. He agreed, but only with the stipulation that Hamilton be named a major general and realistically take charge of the effort. A more serious conflict was avoided in 1800 when the U.S. and Napoleon Bonaparte negotiated a settlement. With the death of Washington in 1799, Hamilton lost his great political benefactor, He also could only be a spectator for the political drama of the presidential election of 1800. Federalist President Adams ran for re-election against Democratic-Republican Vice President Thomas Jefferson.
Jefferson defeated Adams, but under the prevailing rules, the individual who received the most electoral votes would be president. The individual who received the second number of electoral votes for president would be vice president. Each elector had two votes for president. According to a plan worked out in advance, one elector was supposed to vote for another candidate rather than Democratic-Republican vice presidential candidate Aaron Burr. But instead, both candidates received the same number of electoral votes, 73. In the event of a tie, the election would have to be decided by the House of Representatives. In the general election, Hamilton played the role of a spoiler. He intrigued against John Adams, even though Adams was a Federalist, by supporting Adams's running mate, Charles Pinckney. Hamilton and Adams had developed a serious hostility, mostly due to Hamilton's relationship with Washington, which Adams deeply resented. Logically, Hamilton might have supported New Yorker Aaron Burr over his bitter rival Jefferson, but again, Hamilton openly intrigued in favor of Jefferson. He described the vice president as, quote, by far not so a dangerous man, unquote, as Burr. It took 35 ballots, ultimately a negotiation which Hamilton supported, which made Jefferson the third president and Aaron Burr vice president. While personal enmity towards Burr was one explanation, it has been suggested that Hamilton was afraid that he might lose control over Federalists who found Burr, a Northeasterner, a reasonable individual capable of compromise. No presidential election would ever be decided in this fashion again. The Twelfth Amendment to the Constitution was hastily composed, which stipulated that electors would cast separate votes for president and vice president. In November of 1801, Alexander Hamilton and a group of Federalist investors founded the New York Evening Post. They needed a prominent vehicle to criticize the administration of Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans. Today, this paper, the longest-running daily publishing newspaper in America, is known as the New York Post and is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Hamilton frequently contributed to the paper, continuing to fire journalistic broadsides despite the political collapse of the Federalist Party. Only a week after the Post was formed, Hamilton and his family would suffer a tragic event with eerie overtones. His 19-year-old son, Philip, a graduate of Columbia, was killed in a duel sparked by a politically charged argument in a New York theater. Although he was stunned by his son's death, Hamilton was fully aware of the impending event, even counseling Philip on how to honorably conduct himself. The United States finally began to experience peace and prosperity in the first term of Thomas Jefferson, and with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, Hamilton's former adversary enjoyed his greatest popularity. Hamilton was reduced to practicing law, but political developments in 1804 again involved him in New York state politics. It was clear that Jefferson fully intended to dump Aaron Burr as vice president in the upcoming presidential election. In the machinations surrounding the presidential election of 1800, Burr had refused to publicly state that he was Jefferson's vice presidential running mate, and even maneuvered behind the scenes to try and win in the House of Representatives. As a result, Jefferson completely isolated him from any role in the administration and replaced him on the 1804 ticket with New York State Governor George Clinton. Burr then decided to run for governor of New York. He would be soundly defeated in a bitter campaign marked by personal attacks of all kinds. For this, he and his followers blamed Alexander Hamilton. Burr personally began to obsess about the man who had blocked both his presidential and gubernatorial aspirations. Hamilton did have a philosophical reason to oppose Burr. He believed that Burr, if elected governor, would unite with disaffected New England Federalists to secede from the United States. The Louisiana Purchase had tilted the balance of power away from the Northeast and in favor of the Middle Atlantic states. Western expansion would only diminish the region. Hamilton disliked the Jefferson faction, but destroying the federal government, which he had spent his political life constructing, was unacceptable. It was also clear that for Hamilton, his dislike of Burr was personal and that he felt him to be more invested in his own career over the interest of the country and the government. Privately during the campaign, he had referred to Burr as, quote, dangerous, unquote. This insinuation made its way into print. Smarting from his political thrashing, Burr was spoiling for any excuse to confront Hamilton. In June of 1804, he sent Hamilton a letter setting in motion the preamble to a duel, essentially a demand for denial of the words attributed to him. This set off the predictable series of interactions that typically diffuse such a situation, but in this case only hardened the stubborn resolve of both men. 
they finally agreed to engage in a duel to settle this affair of honor. Hamilton did not inform his wife or his family of these developments. He did confide to some associates that he intended to follow the honorable course of firing his shot in the air as an affirmation that he was not a coward, but he was also not a murderer. This was the advice he had given his son, and he seemed to ignore the fatal results. Eventually, Hamilton agreed to a specific date, Wednesday, July 11, 1804, to meet Aaron Burr. On Monday, he left his wife and some members of his family at their summer home, The Grange, in northern Manhattan, and proceeded to his townhouse on Cedar Street. Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton still had no idea of the impending danger. Hamilton continued with a normal workday on Tuesday, drafting legal opinions, and very early on the morning of July 11th, he began to make preparations. To his wife, he left a letter and a hymn. With his surgeon, Dr. David Hosack, and his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, he left a Manhattan dock at 5 a.m. in a boat rowed by anonymous oarsmen and arranged by the seconds. Dueling was a crime that could result in a charge of murder. Even the pistols that would be used were carried in a leather pouch to provide deniability in any future investigation. The boat's destination was the dueling ground at Weehawken, New Jersey, a secluded ledge that provided privacy and a state that provided less prosecutorial zeal towards dueling. Burr and his second, William Van Ness, got there first, pushed up the narrow path from the beach, and began clearing debris from the small open space. Hamilton arrived at 7 a.m., left Dr. Hosack at the boat so as not to incriminate him, and proceeded up the path. He was at the same spot where his son had been mortally wounded. Hamilton and Burr followed the accepted custom of exchanging polite greetings. The seconds got on with the protocols of dueling. Ten paces were walked off. Lots were drawn to pick which side of the ledge each combatant would choose. Hamilton won, but strangely chose the northern position, which meant that he would be looking directly into sunlight, the river, and the horizon. Burr would have a much clearer backdrop of the shaded woods. Because he had been challenged, Hamilton got to choose the weapons, flintlock pistols owned by his brother-in-law, John Barker Church, the husband of Angelica Schuyler Church. The seconds loaded the pistols in plain sight, and handed them to the combatants. Pendleton won the draw to supervise the duel. He recited the rules. When he asked if both parties were ready, and if they answered in the affirmative, he would then say present. At that point, the duelists could fire. If one party did not fire, the second would count one, two, three, fire. And if the party still refused, a discussion would commence to attempt a verbal resolution or the need for a second round. Pendleton now asked if both parties were ready. Hamilton and Burr had assumed the sideways stance that would afford the most limited target. But suddenly Hamilton asked for a chance to retrieve his glasses. With one hand, he put them on and then indicated that he was ready. Throughout Alexander Hamilton's life, he would repeatedly be present at some of the most remarkable moments in American history. During some of the most important moments of Hamilton's personal life, Aaron Burr seemed to somehow always coincidentally appear. When Hamilton had journeyed all the way from the West Indies to enroll at Elizabethtown Academy in the summer of 1773, he would have assuredly met a recent graduate who spent the same summer there, Aaron Burr. When Hamilton had asked to matriculate early from Princeton, he was relying on precedent set with the admission of a precocious 13-year-old to a sophomore class, Aaron Burr. When his father-in-law had granted Hamilton the privilege of access to his voluminous law library to prepare for his bar exam, one other person had also been simultaneously offered this privilege, Aaron Burr. When Maria Reynolds finally decided to leave her husband in the midst of the Reynolds affair, who handled her divorce? Aaron Burr. When James Monroe was repeatedly challenged by Hamilton to a duel, who advised him to move on and probably helped defuse the potentially lethal process? Aaron Burr. Now, in some strange final coincidence, the two men, in the grip of angry self-destruction, stood at attention. Pendleton asked if they were ready. They both said yes. The second said, present. Pistols were lifted, and both men fired within a split second. Hamilton was struck directly in the abdominal area, the bullet blasting through his ribs, piercing his liver, and shattering a vertebra. Burr was unscathed. Hamilton's shot hit a tree. 12 feet off the ground, indicating that he had, in fact, wasted his shot purposely and had not aimed at Burr. 
Hamilton toppled over on his face and was heard to say, I am a dead man. As Pendleton yelled for Dr. Hosack, Burr made an initial move toward Hamilton, but his second warned him that the doctor and the boatman would soon be there and they would have to leave immediately to avoid any further legal consequences. Van Ness shielded Burr's face with an umbrella as they made their way down to the path to their own boat and quickly started back to Manhattan. By the time Hosack got to the scene, Pendleton had propped Hamilton onto a rock. To Hosack, Hamilton could only gasp, this is a mortal wound. By the time Hamilton was carried to the boat, the doctor thought that he was already dead. However, once out on the water, Hamilton revived enough to complain of blurred vision and a paralysis in his legs. He was transported back to the dock from which they had left, a dock owned by Hamilton's friend, banker William Bayard. Hamilton was met there by Bayard, who had heard of the early morning departure and suspected the worst. Hamilton was brought to his second-floor bedroom. Hamilton survived for an agonizing 31 hours. He was consoled by his wife and children, as well as his sister-in-law, Angelica. Other friends made their way to his bedside, with as many as 20 people crowding into the bedroom. Outside in Manhattan, news of the outcome of the duel shocked and stunned the entire city. Hamilton seemed only concerned about the state of his wife and his determination to receive Holy Communion before he died. Because he had participated in a duel, two clergymen refused until one finally relented and granted Hamilton's wish. He died shortly thereafter at 2 p.m. on Thursday, July 12, 1804, at the age of 49. Hamilton's funeral procession was a dramatic affair that took two hours to wind its way through the streets of Manhattan to Trinity Church, the site of his burial. The streets were thronged with thousands of stricken people. Hamilton's close friend and political associate, Governor Morris, delivered the eulogy. Four of Hamilton's sons sat next to him in the church, weeping. Alexander Hamilton was then placed in a churchyard plot in the geographic center of what would eventually become the heart of American finance. Aaron Burr left the dueling grounds and went home and ate a hearty breakfast. It took a while, but the anger of New Yorkers and the real possibility that he might be arrested for murder caused him to decide to leave town. When an arrest warrant was issued in both New York and New Jersey, Burr first hit out on the Georgia coast, but ultimately made his way back to the capital, Washington. He was, after all, still the vice president. He would actually preside over the February 1805 unsuccessful impeachment trial of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase, a Federalist being harassed by the Democratic Republicans. But it was his last official political act as his term of office soon ended. Burr was not only a wanted man in his home state, he was also a bankrupt. His property seized and sold, and he still faced thousands in debt, another reason to avoid New York. As a literal exile, he would wander the remote corners of the United States, attaching himself to various schemes involving murky plans for secession, with Burr presumably assuming a prominent position of authority. He would eventually be arrested for treason in 1807, a charge of which he would be acquitted, despite a vengeful Jefferson exerting extreme pressure for a conviction. Released, Burr fled to Europe to avoid both scorn and his unpaid bills. He eventually returned to the United States, changed his name to avoid creditors, practiced law, and in 1833 married a much younger, wealthier woman. She left him after only four months of marriage when he began dissipating her fortune on speculative land deals. Burr died in a Staten Island boarding house, never exhibiting any remorse or regret over the death of Alexander Hamilton. Elizabeth Hamilton lived until 1854 and died at age 97 in relative obscurity in Washington, D.C., utterly devoted to both her husband and his political legacy. His death at a young age allowed both Adams and Jefferson to discredit his life and his accomplishments. However, Hamilton's contributions to the American financial system and fundamental construction of the federal government are undeniable. The Federal Reserve Bank, the U.S. Coast Guard, the U.S. Mint, and even the underlying philosophy of the American Constitution itself are literal creations of Hamilton's unique and prescient ingenuity. It certainly should not be surprising that over 200 years after his death in New York, his political base and the city he loved from an early age, he has regained his stature as one of the most influential figures in American history. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast about Alexander Hamilton. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, 
Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, and Alexander Hamilton, A Life by Willard Stern Randall. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.